Arkansas has one of the only places in the entire world where the public can dig for diamonds in its natural volcanic source. Hear about the Crater of Diamonds State Park on this episode of the Our History Podcast. Hello, it's Heather. So we discussed some pretty serious things on this podcast. This episode is a little different. Since it's the summer and a lot of you may have a little bit of extra time, I thought it would be fun to discuss a place where you and your family or a group of friends can travel, have some fun in the sun, and hopefully leave with something very valuable. The Crater of Diamonds State Park in Murfreesboro is one of Arkansas's most unique places. According to its website, over 33,000 diamonds have been unearthed there just since it became a state park in 1972. It truly is a place where geology and history collide to create something really fascinating. Wayman Cox has worked at the Crater of Diamonds State Park for over 13 years. He joins me on this episode to discuss the park's history, how the diamond hunting process works, and if I would really be able to walk out of that park with a huge diamond if I found one. Here is my full conversation with Mr. Cox. Okay. All right, so, um, and some of these questions are actually uh, just questions that I've had uh, my whole life about the park, so this is, like, really awesome for me. Um, Why and how are diamonds located in Arkansas? Okay, well, the uh, story of our diamonds goes back, really, billions of years. Um, According to geologists, it started when the South American and North American continental plates collided. Uh, forming the Washita Mountains, uh, which today lie about eight miles north of the park. Um, over time, of course, due to uh, uh, tectonic plate movement, um, the, the, of course, the two continents separated. And when that happened about 100 million years ago, give or take a few thousand years, uh, weaknesses in Earth's crust are believed to have allowed the magma to escape to the surface here in southwest, present-day southwest Arkansas. Um, you know, the, the uh, geologists have studied this area for 100 years and, and have come up with, with different ideas of what could have happened. The general consensus is that the initial eruption was uh, extremely uh, violent. Um, you know, they believe that the, the magma originated about 100 to 120 miles below the surface. And um, during that time of uh, the eruption, it was, you know, this, this magma moving very rapidly toward the surface. Uh, when it reached about 600 feet below the surface, uh, the pressure overcame basically the surface rock. Uh, and it was just like a giant bubble bursting. So it, it you know, blew up the surface and then collapsed back in on itself. Uh, that first eruption is the one they believe brought most of the diamonds up uh, to the surface just due to the speed with which it uh, occurred. Um, you know, the diamonds formed 100 miles underground, but they had to be preserved uh, in order to be found where they can be today. And so they were you know they they were pushed up fast enough that uh some of them survived the trip and and uh you know came up in the host rock and and over time uh eroded out to to where they could be discovered uh the first diamonds weren't actually discovered though until much much later in 1906 um you know and but as soon as the 1800s you know they believed that uh this area could have potential to have diamonds in it 
there was a geologist, uh, J.C. Brenner, who came out here in the 1880s and uh, looked at the area because they had just recently found diamonds in a volcano in Kimberley, South Africa uh, at that time. Uh, he, you know, the, and so I, after, you know, hearing from locals over years that, you know, there was this weird green dirt south of Murfreesboro, uh, Arkansas, you know, he, he made the trip down here and actually was able to kind of investigate himself. He did not find any diamonds at that time, but uh, in 1906, actually the landowner, John Huddleston, is the one who found the first diamonds. Okay, okay. The the geologist who had been to South Africa, like he's a, a world-renowned like person who just ends up coming to Arkansas and looking at this at this place for diamonds. Right, yeah. This, wow. You know, there's, there was a lot of... Uh, you know, of course, people that worked in the African mines that were familiar with uh, with the, you know, the the dirt, the the material that was found there. They they uh, called it all peridotite at the time is more of a general term for diamond bearing ore. And, uh, you know, over time, they, uh, of course, you know, called it Kimberlite, named after Kimberly, uh, South Africa. And then eventually uh, they learned that this soil that we have here is more closer to what uh is found like in uh, mines in australia and and some others uh called lamprolite uh it visibly it looks exactly the same but there are certain minerals that are found more prevalent in one than the other so so ours here has uh, ours is closer to the lamprolite and, okay. and so that's that's kind of how they found it is they yeah so it looks similar to what you know, they had diamonds in over in South Africa. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So the landowner um, discovered it in, did you say 1906 around then or? Right. The first diamonds uh, were actually discovered in Arkansas in 1906 uh, by a guy named John Huddleston. Uh, He was a farmer that owned uh, part of the modern, uh, modern day diamond search area. So uh, he owned basically a larger portion of it on the south end of, of where people search for diamonds today. Um, he, <clears throat> excuse me, he told stories about you know how he found the first diamonds, and they they kind of varied over years because he was he was more or less a folk hero here in Southwest Arkansas, you know, for this part of the state. And uh, but but basically the story was, or one of the stories said that he was out feeding his hogs one day. Uh, on his farm when he saw these uh, glittering flakes in the soil. And uh, so he scooped the dirt up that had the flakes in it into a gold pan, because like many farmers in that day, he was a prospector in his in his uh, spare time. Uh, and so he took him to a nearby creek and washed the dirt out in the creek. Well, the glittery flakes floated away, so he knew they probably weren't diamonds, because uh, diamonds and, and gold are both pretty, known to be pretty heavy. Uh, but he said after he after he uh, washed out all the dirt, he found a stone in the bottom of his pan that he said shone like fire in his eyes. Uh, every which way he turned it, I mean, it was it was you know glittery. It was very very shiny. And at that point, he, he said he was pretty sure of what he had. Uh, he saddled his mule and and uh, rode into town. And along the way, uh, along the road, he actually saw another glittering pebble on top of the ground uh, near the road. And so he jumped off, jumped down off his mule and picked it up as well. Uh, he took the stones to a bank in Murfreesboro and showed them to a, 
the bank president who mailed them to Little Rock uh, to a guy to, you know, with the uh, geological survey to kind of help, you know, examine them and see what they could be. And uh, because they were so uh, new, nobody, you know, nobody had ever found anything like that in Arkansas. Uh, it was such a new discovery. And then there had also been, uh, you know, false claims elsewhere in the U.S., I think in Wyoming, uh, and years prior to that, that had caused a big controversy. Uh, the guy in Little Rock mailed him to a um, gemologist or jeweler with uh, Tiffany's in New York. Um, and so the guy with Tiffany's is the one who confirmed that they were genuine diamonds. Um, but like much of John Huddleston's story, the exact size and weight and, and color of those first two diamonds has been lost to history, unfortunately. We probably never know exactly how big they were. Um, Huddleston sold his land to a, a group of commercial uh, uh, basically, uh, a group of investors who uh, were interested in starting a commercial mining company he sold it for thirty-six thousand um, dollars, and uh, then they started commercial mining the area shortly thereafter. Wow! So that's a good segue into some of the um, into the next question. So, like, so he <coughs> finds whatever size diamond in nineteen oh six, confirms that it is actually a diamond. Um, and then I guess the next event is that he sells this land to this commercial mining, but what, what comes next? Like sort of, what are some of the major events? How does it end up becoming a, um, an Arkansas state park? So, you know, there was a, a basically a time period when it was, um, commercially mined, mm-hmm. uh, of course. And, and that was for most, much of the 20th century, especially the first half, uh, it was commercially mined. Um, he uh, sold his farm, basically he found the diamonds in August of 1906. He sold his farm by September uh, wow. for $36,000 to the group yeah. of investors. Uh, and then they set up a primitive wash plant to kind of test the ground and see mm-hmm. um, how many diamonds they could find, if it was commercially viable, you know, if, uh, you know, what kind of setup they needed, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a gentleman on the... Uh, north side of the modern search area named uh, Millard Mooney who owned it and um, he learned of course that he probably also had diamond bearing soil and so uh, he was more of an entrepreneur uh, in that he would actually hire uh, people to come out and work for him because uh, you know there were of course just like the just like the gold uh, you know the, the gold rush out in California and here in uh, Arkansas, in southwest Arkansas, there was a diamond rush basically after Huddleston found those diamonds and word yeah. got out. So there were thousands of prospectors uh, that came in, in in 1906, early 1907, that you know basically flooded into town to look for diamonds. Um, and, and so uh, Mr. Mooney hired uh, a lot of those to work on his land. Uh, of course, most most of the others would just kind of comb the countryside to find their own. Uh, you know, places to dig, and and you know they 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 would make their stake their own claims basically in those areas. Uh, but most of them, of course, like the gold rush, most people didn't find anything. Uh, but you know the the ones that worked for Mala, uh, Mr. Mooney, Millard Mooney, 
uh, you know, basically he hired them on a half system, like he would give them half the value of any diamond that they happened to find. So, you know, it was a, and, and it was part of the proven diamond bearing ground. So that, it was a pretty good deal for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, you know, of course, geologists that brought, uh, were brought in George Coons, who's a mineralogist. Um, you know, he was of course the, one of the top geologists in the U S in the early 1900s that, uh, he came in and, and did a study on the mine and, and, uh, of course, um, you know, uh, John Branner, the one that came here in, in the late 1800s, uh, you know, did his own surveys and they created maps and, and, uh, you know, went around basically telling people, you know, doing presentations on the diamonds in Arkansas. And because it was so fascinating to, you know, learn that they had something here that, you know, you couldn't find anywhere else in the U.S. Yeah, right. Or in the, in the continent at that time, as far as they knew. Uh, this was the first pipe, volcanic pipe, outside of South Africa that diamonds had been discovered in. You know, they've been found in other places, but usually they were placer deposits and creeks and rivers and things like that. Uh, they weren't actually in a volcanic deposit like they were in South Africa and then, you know, like they found here. So it was pretty significant discovery, uh, certainly at that time. Um, there... Uh, you know, Mr. Mooney eventually leased his land. He kind of divided it up into pie wedges and leased it to uh, uh, a, a gentleman named uh, Howard or Austin Millar, who was a geologist from Minnesota. He came down and and uh, set up a uh, a mine that was actually fairly successful. Uh, they found you know over a thousand diamonds in a in a testing period um, when they were when they were trying to you know work it out and see how you know how what kind of operation would work best so mm-hmm. uh, he leased part of the land to him but he always reserved part of it for himself to uh you know basically mine and and on his own and keep his own you know uh make his own profit from the diamonds yeah. that he found yeah. um on john huddleston's side of the of the uh diamond bearing soil there was also a, basically a competing commercial mine that was set up uh, and they operated uh, very similarly, um, you know, for about 40 years. Uh, around uh, the, one of the last major attempts, I believe, was around 1948, um, in the late 40s. Uh, there was a, a aircraft magnate, uh, Glenn Martin, which a lot of people are familiar with. Uh, Martin Lockheed Aircraft Company. Yeah, he, wow. He opened a mining operation. Uh, on Huddleston's land, um, it was only operated for about nine months. Uh, he basically invested in it, you know, uh, paid for the buildings and things like that. I uh, don't think he ever visited uh, this part of Arkansas or anything like that. But but it was something that somebody sold him on, you know, mine, opening your own diamond mine in Arkansas. Uh, so it was either, uh, you know. Um, but basically it was, uh, poorly managed, uh, and, and ended up closing less than a year later. Wow. Uh, and that was really one of the last major, uh, attempts at, you know, operating a commercial mine here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so shortly after that, and in, in the fifties, they actually started opening, uh, tourist attractions. Um, now, you know, they had, they had, allowed people to come in beforehand before that to uh, search for diamonds in some of the commercial mines um you know mr uh, mooney actually did that he would 
you know, open up his land on Sundays, basically, to let some of the miners and their families and, you know, folks that came down here just to see diamonds in Arkansas, you know, kind of like we have today, uh, he would charge them a fee and let them go out and hunt for diamonds on his land as well. But, but in the 50s onward is when they really started uh, pushing the, you know, paid to dig sites the the you know where people would come in and dig for their own diamonds the very first one was the diamond preserve of the united states and it opened in 1951 uh, but it it basically you know it, it never made a profit but it, it was kind of a uh, you know a template it was a pattern that these future uh, sites would operate based on you know it kind of set the standard more or less uh, but the next year, um, Austin Millar's son, Howard, uh, who still lived in the area, actually opened his own attraction. It was called Millar's Crater of Diamonds. He, he opened it on the land that Mr. Mooney had once owned and that uh, his, his dad, Austin, had mined on. Uh, they, had, they had been able to acquire that land. And so he opened that in, the, uh, in 1952. Uh, and it was really the crater of diamonds that, of course, the park today uh, based its name on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Millar's crater of diamonds. Um, that, on his land, there was, uh, you know, of course, several uh, people visited. Uh, one of the significant finds there was uh, 1956, a school teacher from Dallas, Texas named Winifred Parker. Uh, came out and she was digging along the edge of the field. It was a muddy day, kind of like what we're experiencing uh, right now, lots of rain. And uh, so she was digging right around the edge of the field and and she was looking and said she looked down at somebody's shoe print and saw this crystal uh, sitting uh, sitting on the surface. And anyway, she picked it up and ended up finding out it was a 15.36 carat white diamond. Uh, it was over an inch long. It was very long. Uh, crystal, very beautiful, shiny crystal. Uh, she had it cut down eventually to a, a marquee-shaped diamond weighing eight and a quarter carats. Um, very, very beautiful gem that, that she found. And that really kicked it into high gear for the Crater of Diamonds. You know, there was a lot of a uh, lot of publicity over that diamond, especially when it was cut. You know, uh, there was there was a lot of uh, people that that uh, knew about that diamond. Mm-hmm. And so um, that you know brought a lot of attention to the Crater of Diamonds. Well, right across the fence on the south end of the field uh, during that time uh, was another competing tourist attraction uh, called the Arkansas Mine or the Big Mine. They called it the Big Mine because it was a bigger area. Uh, it was actually the one that had <clears throat> belonged to John Huddleston. Uh, and so uh, there were these two competing attractions across from one another for years that uh, basically, would, you know, they, they would put up billboards in town and try to draw, you know, people to one versus the other. Uh, you know, they called it the battle of the billboards. There was, you know, there were, uh, you know, they would offer different things, you know, world's largest uh, fluorescent gym collection, or uh, this is the place where the famous, you know, uh, star of Arkansas or the uh, uh, Uncle Sam was discovered. Uh, I don't think I mentioned that one. That one was a uh, the biggest diamond ever found in North America. Uh, but it was actually found in 1924. It was over 40 carats, and it was found on Huddleston's land. Uh, and so that was their big claim to fame: is that well, they they had the biggest diamond ever found, you know, in, on the continent. Uh, you know, 
at their on their site. So so they went back and forth for several years uh, competing, um, you know, for for business from from visitors from travelers in the area, um, and they eventually sold out in the late '60s uh, to a company out of Dallas called General Earth Minerals. Uh, it was basically they you know kind of like now business goes in waves. I mean, some, some years you're way up, some years you're down a little bit. Uh, and, and Mr. Millar was getting older. I think he finally just kind of got tired of it. And he, he sold it to this company out of Dallas. Um, they also bought the, uh, the big mine. So they actually, for the first time, had the entire uh, crater, on, uh, the diamond bearing crater under one ownership uh, for the first time in its history in the late 60s. Uh, they operated for a couple of years, the General Earth Minerals. They tried to uh, mine it, and then they would open a portion of it to the public for people to come and search for diamonds. Uh, they couldn't really turn a profit off of it, so they turned around and uh, sold it to uh, Arkansas, to, uh, to the State Parks, Recreation, and Travel Commission uh, in, in 1972. And that, that was when it became uh, the 27th Arkansas State Park. Very cool. Yeah, that's such an interesting history, like back and forth owners and <laughs> stuff like Getting that. Mining attractions and you yeah, know, yeah. And there were several. You know, it wasn't just those you know two uh, uh, um, commercial mines I were talking mm -hmm. about. There were several mm -hmm. over that time period, and, yeah. and and they actually found more more deposits uh, within this area. The Arkansas Geological Survey uh, you know, has a map of, of this particular area and it shows i think eight deposits uh diamond bearing uh material within about two miles uh wow. of this area so so there were people that owned you know other diamond deposits mm -hmm. that you know they would try to mine for a little while so th there's a lot more to it even beyond the park uh in this area of people yeah. trying to search for diamonds even yeah. today so yeah wow um so i know that um you know, when you go to the park, of course, everybody's looking for a diamond. Um, but I was reading that there are actually some rocks and other, you know, some other things that you might actually come across while you're looking for diamonds that are kind of cool. So um, what are some of the other things you might find there at the park? There are, you know, of course, this this park is unique among state parks in that you can take the rocks and minerals you find here home. But, you know, like we tell people all, a lot, it's uh, we still have to conserve the resource, you know, for future generations. We want this place to be here in a hundred plus years for you know, our kids, grandkids, great grandkids, and all them to be able to enjoy. So the only way to do that, or the best way that we found to do that currently, is to limit what you take home. So you do have to, you know, sift gravel. You can't take dirt out, basically, but you can take gravel. And there's a lot of other stuff. Uh, most of the uh, basic rocks and minerals that we have found here are silicate based. So uh, things like quartz crystal and jasper and banded agate, uh, which is very beautiful. A lot of people like to collect those things. Uh, we have amethyst out here uh, in, in particular areas. Unlike diamonds, you can find amethyst in veins. So, you know, you can dig in one spot and have a have a chance to and find a, a pretty good load of amethyst. We've had people pull out five gallon buckets full of amethyst uh, from the park before. Uh, so that does happen. We, we do have garnets uh, found here. Most of them are very tiny. 
Uh, same with peridot. Uh, peridot is another gemstone that people people uh, find here occasionally, uh, as well as topaz. You know, topaz. Those are extremely rare, though. I would say you know less common than diamonds for sure. Not necessarily as valuable, but yeah. you know, there's something that we do occasionally see. Yeah. Um, so so there's lots of stuff, and and you know. We tell people, I mean, you can you can do more with some of the different rocks and minerals than just set them in a drawer or on a shelf. I mean, you can cut and polish the amethyst, of course, and the uh, banded agate. A lot of people put them in rock tumblers with jasper and things like that. Uh, even the volcanic rock itself, the lamprolite, uh, is something that you're not likely to find in most of the places. Mm -hmm. So the chances of you you know going uh anywhere else and picking up this volcanic uh, material the, the the material that the diamonds actually formed in that brought them to the surface is very rare uh, yeah. so that's another uh you know appealing factor a lot of people like they can you know collect something here that they won't find yeah. anywhere else. right exactly all right so walk me through the process so i live in jonesboro so i drive almost four hours <laughs> come down there and I park and like, what, what's the process look like for me yeah. as a visitor? Well, uh, even, even before you begin, you know, we encourage people to look on our website. Um, you know, there's resources to, to prepare for your visit uh, on uh, creatorofdiamondstatepark.com. Uh, you know, we have videos to show you how to search for diamonds. We have pictures of diamonds and descriptions and tell you what you're looking for, uh, you know, and, and how, to, how to search for them. And so it really starts before you ever arrive. Um, we do sell tickets online that you can buy through our website. Uh, right now we're limited on uh, daily visitation. Now that doesn't mean, you know, if you don't buy tickets online, you can't get in, uh, but we are limited to 1500 visitors a day currently. Uh, so we encourage people that if, if you know what day you wanna come uh, to go on our website and buy tickets ahead. Um, ahead of time so that you can be prepared to, to come here and search um, and like I said if we don't sell out on a particular day which you know doesn't normally happen we're, we're usually you know, we'll sell a few hundred and uh, uh, the rest of them will be available at the visitor center for people to come up and purchase so uh, but once you arrive you come in through our visitor center uh, you can come into the museum at the visitor center and, and learn about the park's history uh, especially the diamonds. We have diamonds on display there uh, because that's one thing most people don't know what they're looking for. You know, they've never seen a rough diamond so, unless they see one on the news. And even then, it's just, you know, one diamond. So uh, take a look at the rough diamonds uh, in the visitor center. From there, you'll go down to our Diamond Discovery Center. And uh, down here, you can learn about the uh, different searching techniques. And uh, this building focuses more on the geology of the part, the rocks and minerals that are found here, because this is the first place that people come up to when they you know, leave the search area. So you know, we're all about what you found, what you can find, uh, you know, showing you some of the different things that, that you, know, you can discover here at the park uh, other than diamonds. Mm -hmm. uh, this is also where you can rent your equipment at the Diamond Discovery Center. You don't have to rent tools. Um, you can bring your own. You can bring things from home as long as they're not battery or motor operated. Um, so people build screens or they, you know, bring their own little garden shovels or 
uh, even colanders out of the kitchen. You know, people bring stuff like that, uh, and, and they'll search for diamonds with that stuff. You know, so you don't have to rent tools at all. Uh, but then from there, of course, your next stop is the diamond search area. Um, it's pretty big field. It's it's a large open area, thirty-seven and a half acres. Um, very little shade. So you know, depending on the time of year and the weather, you may want to bring like a, a a tent or a canopy or an umbrella. Uh, be sure and stake it down real good because it, the wind likes to blow out there a lot, and, and you know people sometimes lose their canopies. But you know, if it's summer especially, we highly encourage you to bring something to, you know for shade. Um, we do also encourage bottled water. Uh, have a lot of heat-related illness uh, during the hotter times of year, so so bring water with you to drink because you know it's kind of like you catch diamond fever and you come out here and you, you spend four hours in this you know broad daylight sun just <laughs> sitting on the ground looking for diamonds and that's all you're concentrating thinking about. You haven't eaten since seven o'clock this morning, <laughs> and we have a lot of people that overheat as a result. Yeah, you know, so yeah. so bringing snacks, bringing drinks. You can bring, you know, uh, ice chests full of water and, and uh, spend the day out here if you'd like. Yeah. Um, your tickets are good for all day, so you can, you can leave and go back into town if you want to during the day to eat lunch, whatnot. Yeah. Um, uh, when you're out there, there are different methods. Uh, if you, you want me to talk about the different searching techniques, is that? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, that would be awesome, yeah. So. Uh, there are different ways to search. Um, the easiest way is just surface searching. That tends to uh, bring about most of the larger diamonds. Um, and that's kind of what, what we talked about earlier. Most of the larger diamonds uh, found on the surface are going to be found uh, right after good rain, you know, uh, especially two to three days after the rain stops, uh, the sun comes out. And it tends to be when most people pick up those diamonds on the surface. Uh, and that, that usually accounts for about one out of every 10 diamonds, too. So quite a few uh, each year mm -hmm. found that way. Uh, you can also, if the weather's been dry enough, you can dry sift. Uh, just kind of sitting out wherever you're at in the field, you can run the dirt through your screens and sift it out and look through the gravel for the diamonds. Uh, or you can uh, do like most people like to do and wet sift it. Um, for that, we have a couple of pavilions in the field where you can actually take your dirt and wash it through your screens in water, uh, in, in big water tanks. And that just lets you go through the dirt faster. You know, that's also the most successful way, but it's it's the most um, labor-intensive way to search for diamonds. You do have to learn a process, and you're hauling dirt back and forth, and you're, you're, you're sifting more dirt at one time. But... But again, about 60%, 65% of the diamonds are found uh, by wet sifting, um, you know, by, because you're going through so much more dirt than with the other methods. Um, you can take gravel home with you. Uh, you know, like I said uh, a moment ago, you, most other parks, you can't take anything. Uh, but we do allow you to take the gravel home. And, and about half of the diamonds that we register are found in that sifted gravel that people take with them. You know, and, and bigger stuff too. So if you got a rock garden at home, or you, you know, looking for bookends or something like mm -hmm. that, you can get a couple, yep. of, you know, some big rocks to you know display at your house mm -hmm. too. So, um, and after you search for diamonds, uh, you can come back up toward the Diamond Discovery Center right in front of the park entrance or the uh, mine entrance, and you can have your finds identified uh, right there. That's where we certify diamonds.
tell people what they have, whether it's a diamond or not. Very cool. All right. So if I find a diamond, I truly get to keep it. I like get to walk out of y'all's park with a diamond. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We, okay. I mean, we, uh, finders keepers is the park policy. <laughs> we have people, um, you know, last year we had a, a gentleman find a nine carat diamond on the surface. And so, yeah, yeah. you got to keep it. Um, you know, that's, that's what it is. You know, back back before it was uh, state owned, uh, when it was a private uh, tourist attraction, uh, they would charge extra in some cases. Mm -hmm. If you found a diamond, you know, over say five carats, they would charge you a, a royalty to be able to keep it. You know, mm -hmm. so but we don't do that anymore. You know, we don't appraise we don't appraise the diamonds. Uh, that's mm -hmm. something a lot of people ask us. We we can't tell you what it's worth. Yeah. Uh, because we're not trained to do that. If if yeah. we were trained to be gemologists and and to do that for people, we would quit and open our own business to be a gemologist, you know, uh, and, and make money doing that too. But, exactly. But uh, it's it's you know that also uh, you know allows them to kind of seek their own um, expert in the field, you know. So a lot of people have jewelers and gemologists in their hometowns or uh, nearby who who have a good reputation who get yeah. to kind of you know participate in this process. Yeah. Of course, most jewelers, gemologists in Arkansas have probably seen uncut diamonds and other stuff that mm -hmm. that uh, you know people from here have have taken to them, and, and uh, you know it's um, something I don't know how they feel about it. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. It's frustrating. And, oh, there's another yeah. rough piece of quartz that somebody brought <laughs> yeah, in. Exactly. But exactly. you know, I, I think some of them really enjoy it and uh, and uh, you know get a kick out of it because they, yeah. of course, they. I mean, it's you find a two, three, five, eight carat, nine carat diamond. I mean, um, you know, it's pretty significant, and, yeah. and especially if it's a good quality. I, I know a lot of them will, um, you know, kind of uh, work with them if they want it cut or whatever to, uh, you know, work with them to do whatever they want to get yeah. whatever they want to get out of that experience. You know, yeah. kind of help them make a good dis informed decision. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, you already talked about some of the facilities um, at the park, so I'll just go to the to the last question. So, why is Crater of Diamonds State Park significant to Arkansas history and also um, in the present an important place? Uh, I think it's. I mean, it's a symbol of our state. It's. It's of course it's everywhere. You know, from our flag to our, the state quarter to the you know dozens of businesses around Arkansas. Uh, it's something we're known for, you know, uh, I mean, going back, you know, to the early 1900s, it's it's something that, you know, brought a lot of attention to Arkansas. And it's something that makes makes this place different, makes a, makes the state different and, you know, and, and brings people here from all over the world every year. So, uh, the history is fascinating. And there's so many different facets to this place that are interesting, the history, the geology of the area. Uh, you know, something that's so unique uh, to be found in Arkansas is, is really special. Thanks so much again to Wayman Cox for being interviewed for this episode. If you want more information about Crater of Diamond State Park, please check out the links in the episode notes. There you will also find information about our generous sponsor, the Arkansas Humanities Council.